Welcome to the Contrast Church Podcast. Contrast is located in Grandview, Ohio, with the mission to help people be with Jesus, become like Him, and live out His mission together. For more information on attending our meetings, our missional communities, or giving, visit contrast.church. Hey everyone, my name is Josh Taylor. Thanks for taking some time to listen to the Contrast uh, messages. I want to share a little bit about myself because I've never gotten to share at Contrast before. And uh, my name is Josh. Uh, we just moved to the Columbus area as church planners. If you know much about Contrast, you know that it's a young church that was planted just a few years ago through Movement Church and Three Creeks. And we are doing the exact same thing. We, uh, our family moved here to be a part of this network and to plant in the Northeast Columbus area. Specifically, our family lives in Sunbury, uh, but we uh, touch a lot of the surrounding area and hope to reach uh, parts of uh, Berkshire Township, Genoa, uh, parts of Westerville or Lewis Center, all the way up to Centerburg. All of that area there is experiencing so much growth right now, and we're excited to be here uh, for our family to be putting down fresh roots. We have three kids, me and my wife Sarah do, uh, named Silas, Judah, and Haven. Uh, some of them are going to elementary school right now. Haven is uh, just three years old and is at home with us, but we moved from the Akron area, and we're there eight years. I, I worked at a church, um, and we had a lot of connections up there, but felt the call uh, to start a new work and be a part of church planning and are excited that God brought us here. And so we're putting together a launch team in the next year, and if that's something that either you're interested in being part of, or maybe you know someone up in that area in the Northeast Columbus area or Sunbury, we would love to connect with you. We'll uh, be putting out more information about uh, Bright City Church that's going to be starting next year, but you can already find out more about it online at brightcitysunbury.com or by finding us on social media like Facebook or Instagram. Just look for Bright City Sunbury. Now we're going to jump into our conversation for today. So we've been in a series called uh, The Gospel According to John, which is uh, just a walkthrough of the book of John. There are four gospel accounts that we have in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And this has just been a series walking through the gospel of John. And something that we've said uh, from the beginning is just how organized the book is. Uh, we've mentioned the seven uh, signs that John lays out. And actually what's going to happen today is we're going to cover two of those signs. So you get a two for one deal today. Uh, the first one was uh, Jesus turning water into wine at this wedding in Cana. And now we're going to look at two more of those um, signs today. And I think that it's important just to uh, talk about how important context is in this conversation. Um, we're going to read a lot of scripture as we unpack this section, but uh, it's important to kind of look at each of these stories on their own individually because uh, they're two distinct moments. They're, they're two distinct individuals who are um, interacting with Jesus, and they have their own standalone meaning. And so we'll unpack that a little bit today, like what the sign is saying, um, but we also want to look at what they're saying together because they happen back to back, and not every um, narrative or every story or every sign in the book of John occurs that way, but these two occur back to back. And so we'll talk about what they mean in their individual context, but also what they mean 
um, in, in the greater context of them appearing next to each other. And um, that's really what a sign is supposed to do in the Gospel of John. It's more than just a miracle. Really what a sign does is it reveals something about Jesus, something unique about his character, who he is, his identity, and his mission. And um, that's exactly what these two signs are going to do today. In fact, if you read to the end of John in chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, you'll see the author of the book, he wrote this down. He said, Jesus performed many other miraculous signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are recorded so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so that's what's unique about a sign is that even though there's been uh, even more miracles and other things that pointed to who Jesus was, more than even are recorded in the gospel accounts, these have been written and organized and, and kind of teed up for us so that we can believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that by believing we would have life in his name. And so uh, understanding what John is trying to share with us here and what uh, is important about Jesus is so crucial because it's more than just a miracle. It's how we can discover life in Jesus. And so uh, without further ado, let me jump into uh, John chapter 4, starting in verse 46, and we're going to read um, an account of a royal official whose son was sick. And it says in verse 46, Now Jesus came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water to wine. In Capernaum there was a certain royal official whose son was sick. When he heard that Jesus had come back from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and begged him to come down and heal his son, who was about to die. So Jesus uh, performed his first sign here as well, the, the turning the water into wine at that wedding in Cana. And this is also where Jesus grew up. So um, people in this area knew him, and he's also becoming known for the teachings and miracles that he's uh, been having from town to town. And what we know, uh, just to give us a little bit of background about what a royal official would, would do, is usually it was someone who was Jewish that worked for the Roman government or whoever Rome was occupying. Israel did not uh, have the liberty to rule uh, themselves. They were occupied by the Roman government. And there were several other roles and ways that this happened through tax collectors and military and uh, people who worked for uh, those ruling officials in that area. And so this man was probably someone who worked in the house of Herod Antipas. Um, Herod the Great uh, was put in charge of all of this Israeli-Palestine region, and uh, he was put in charge of it uh, because of his father's connections to Julius Caesar. And um, he was a very brutal man. He uh, was also very anxious about the amount of power he had and those who maybe wanted him dead even in his own family. We actually know that uh, he was so ruthless and anxious about these kinds of things that um, he massacred all of the male children under two, um, two years of age when he was um, in Jerusalem. And around the time when Jesus was born, we see this rec recorded in the Gospel of Luke. And so um, very ruthless. And when he died, he passed on uh, the, the ruling power to his three sons, um, Archelaus, Antipas, and Philip, and also one region to his sister, Salome. And so this royal official, if just based upon the location where he's at, he is probably working um, alongside, underneath, Herod Antipas. He would have had a, a lot of wealth and a lot of influence to even be uh, hired to work 
alongside uh, a Roman official. Um, but again, he probably was someone who grew up in that area as well. Um, and I think that what you need to note about someone who's a royal official um, working with this much amount of influence and power, um, not only do you not want to be on their bad side, but they, they probably have a lot of ability to leverage whatever they need to, whatever resources uh, they would need at their disposal uh, to work things out, especially if they're in, in a situation of need. And what you see here with this Roman official is not him coming to Jesus demanding that Jesus do something, but you see him begging. And you see um, Jesus uh, is, is in this area, and, and the royal official, official um, hears that he's there, and he comes out of desperation. He, he comes hoping that Jesus maybe has the ability to perform this miracle for his son. I don't know if you've ever felt that way before, a, a place of desperation. Uh, maybe even if, if you have kids, a time with your own child. I remember th there's pretty much only one time in my mind that stands out that intensely. When we first moved to Akron about eight years ago, um, we had our first son, Silas, and he was just the greatest baby in the world. He was chunky and sweet and adorable, and we were so excited because he was our first, and so many things about raising him were new to us, um, and there was a lot of things we were still figuring out, and we knew that... Um, there were times he got sick, you know, he maybe got a fever or his nose was running or just fell off. But there was a time in particular when he was about one year old that um, he just wasn't his normal self. I remember I was working at home for the day and my wife called me into his nursery because uh, she wanted me to check on him. He just um, did not seem like his, himself. And uh, he had had a really high fever. Um, he had been really lethargic. And when I went into the nursery with her, um, he was just very limp. I remember picking him up and holding him in my arms and uh, just feeling like something wasn't right. He, he just was very um, still and lethargic and not moving. So I took him into our bedroom because it was dark in the nursery. I wanted to be able to see him with more light. And I noticed as I walked into our bedroom, his face was turning purple and I assumed he wasn't breathing. And so I told my wife, Sarah, to, to call an ambulance I really had no idea what to do. I just remember holding him, looking to see if something was blocking his airway. I laid him on the ground. I didn't know if maybe I needed to try to attempt at doing uh, some kind of CPR, uh, which I wasn't trained to do. I wasn't familiar with. Uh, could just feel the panic rising in me as every second went by. And I could hear Sarah on the phone uh, telling them that we needed help we needed paramedics to come because our one-year-old wasn't breathing and after a, a little while uh, Silas ended up throwing up he started breathing again and the paramedics arrived at our house not long after that and um, they checked on him they put him in the ambulance my wife Sarah got uh, in the ambulance with him and I remember hopping in the car and following them to the emergency room and praying the most desperate prayers I had ever prayed in my life uh, confused and wondering what might be happening, if he was going to be okay, if this would happen again, if our lives were about to change forever, and still a little shell-shocked that um, things didn't change or, or uh, turn in a horrific direction there in, in our bedroom that afternoon. And I found out when we got to the hospital that he had had a febrile seizure, which apparently uh, isn't 
life-threatening. It's uh, he was totally fine. They said it happens when uh, an infant's uh, fever spikes too quickly and they're not able to regulate the temperature uh, of their body, so they end up having kind of a mini seizure uh, where maybe they stop breathing, and uh, it actually has no long-term effects on them. And I was super relieved and also uh, immediately terrified just that this even happens. Um, that, that is my most desperate moment, uh, where I didn't know how things were going to turn out. I didn't know what to do. And even all the, the ability I had to intervene in that moment to pick up my cell phone, uh, or my wife and to, uh, call an ambulance that could come to our house in two minutes and to go to a hospital, an emergency room that was only a few minutes away. All of those resources, I just started leveraging all the, all them together to, make sure that my son was okay. And what you see here in this situation is a royal official who's desperate and Jesus challenges him in a really great way. In verses 48 through 50, he says, uh, Jesus says to the royal official, he says, unless you people see signs and wonders, you'll never believe. And sir, the official said to him, come down before my child dies. And Jesus told him, go home and your son will live. And it says, the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and he set off for home. So this is very challenging, I'm sure, for a father to hear that Jesus tells him he won't come with him. Uh, he won't travel with him back to Capernaum, but to believe that his son would live. Uh, it's an incredible challenge of faith. It would uh, definitely crush your hope if you were told that the surgeon who was needed to perform a surgery uh, just told you to trust him that it would pass. Um, you would be wondering how long, when will it get better? What if it's not? What if I can't get in touch with them again? Why can't we just fix it, fix it now? Um, relieve my worry and fear. Uh, protect me from the, the pain and the devastation of losing someone I love. Um, you, you would most naturally demand that a person come and help you, especially if you're a person of influence or wealth. Um, but Jesus uh, is interacting with this royal official, and he doesn't demand. In fact, he believes Jesus, and he trusts him. This is why this moment is more than just a miracle um, or a healing. It's a sign. It's revealing more about who Jesus is. And what it reveals about Jesus is that he is our rescuer in moments of desperation. Uh, some people critique the man for not believing that uh, that Jesus could heal his son from a distance, but I don't know how he was supposed to know that. I don't think Jesus is silently judging him that he should have known um, that he didn't have to come with him. I think what Jesus is doing is he's expanding um, his view and our view of God beyond what we can uh, naturally understand, what could be controlled through his own influence. And that desperate faith is exactly the place where Jesus desires to meet us. Um, Jesus is showing us that he is always with us and that the outcomes are on his terms. Um, the power of Jesus stands in stark contrast to the royal official. Some things will just always be outside of our control, but that does not mean they're outside the scope of Jesus' love and rescue. And so it continues in John 4. Uh, it says in verse 51, while he was on his way down, uh, his servants met him and told him that his son was going to live. And so he asked them the time when his condition began to improve. And they told him yesterday at one o'clock in the afternoon, the fever left him. And the father realized it was the very time uh, Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed along with his entire household. 
Jesus did this as the second miraculous sign when he returned from Judea to Galilee. So this is a really important note just to this man's story, that he started traveling home the next day. Uh, I would be anxious to see if what Jesus said was true. Um, We know that uh, Capernaum was probably about a six-hour walk away from uh, Galilee, and we know that maybe it would have taken two hours to get there by chariot, which is probably more than likely the way that this royal official did travel. And so he stays and finishes his work that he had to do in Cana, Um, for that day and goes home the next day. And that's when he hears the news about his son's uh, miraculous recovery and the time at which it happened. And it's more uh, than just them being grateful or relieved or impressed by Jesus. This whole family is changed by Jesus. They believe him in a whole new way. It says that uh, he and himself believed along with his entire household. They are full of faith and love for Jesus. This would be a story that the whole family would talk about for the rest of their lives. And so that's how it's a sign. Um, I I wrote down just kind of this note, if you would uh, want to remember kind of what this sign means, is that desperation is a gift to experience God more deeply. Desperation is a gift to experience God more deeply. And for those of us who have walked through moments of desperation, this is rarely, if ever, what you want to um, hear. You never want to tell someone who's walking through moments of desperation that it's a gift to experience God more deeply because um, it it's just hurtful. Um, I know that if you would have called me or if I, I would have, you know, reached out to you on my way to the hospital with my son Silas and saying, hey, I need you to pray, Uh, that he'll be okay, or if you know anyone at the hospital who can help us, uh, I need you to pull some uh, strings and get us connected to them. And if you just said, hey, this is actually a gift for you to experience God more deeply, I would have hung up the phone. If you had been with me, I would have, uh, you know, freaked out that this is not what I need to hear right now. Um, But it is a conclusion that we have to come to as we walk through desperation. It's something that we have to begin to see and understand for God on our own, and, um, but we have to arrive at that place through our own experience, not just through someone else telling us. I think that uh, desperation is so hard for us to walk through because if a person doesn't have an awareness of God in our life, um, desperation ends up becoming the end of us. We, we get to the end of our rope. We are beyond our control, and we, we hate to be out of control beyond ourselves in the deep end. Um, but it's in these spaces if we are aware of God and uh, we are aware of Jesus and the Holy Spirit's work in our life, that desperation is the beginning of a new depth that we will have forever with God, Um, that we begin to realize he is there and that he is full of loving power. When we become sincerely desperate, we're ready to accept God's will and God's way on God's schedule, even if we don't get what we want. And that's when we begin to know him more intimately and more experientially. And this is what you'll find in the process of desperation is that God cares deeply about you. He sees and helps the people who experience sickness and death and suffering, and he gets right into the midst of it. He doesn't run from sickness and death. He brings restoration. So that's the first sign that we see from the royal official and his son. The second sign is about a lame man, and it's in John 5, and we'll start in verse 1. It says, After this, there was a Jewish feast, and Jewish went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate a pool called 
Bethzatha in Aramaic, which has five covered walkways, and a great number of sick, blind, lame, and paralyzed people were lying in these walkways. So we know that there have been different festivals and holidays, Jewish festivals, that we see in the Gospel of John. Uh, one is very familiar, uh, the Passover. Um, we call it the Feast of Unleavened Bread, or the scriptures call it that. Um, there's another one uh, called the Festival of Lights, um, known as Hanukkah, and then also the Feast of Tabernacles. And so we don't know exactly which one of these holidays or festivals it might have been. Um, many believe maybe it was the Passover, just kind of in the cadence of um, uh, Jesus' life. We, we think that it might be that. But we're not, we can't know for sure. But think about a, a big holiday, right? A Thanksgiving or a Christmas time where your whole week revolves around that holiday, right? You go into a town for activities, you visit with family, you take several naps, there's a lot of buzz and expectation, there's big meals. It's a unique and special time. Maybe you're giving gifts and you talk about that time leading up to it, you plan for it, and you talk about the time after it. What did you do over the holidays? And it becomes a big milestone in time. And when Jesus arrives in Jerusalem, what he apparently did for his holiday was he visited this sanitarium, this, this place that was lying in the shadow of this great temple that was built in Jerusalem, but a place that uh, only sick people, um, paralyzed people, those um, with diseases or with ailments would, would go and hang out. But um, what's interesting about this uh, place with all these, these pools and these walkways um, Beth Zatha, what it meant was house of grace. Um, and that'll be important later for um, kind of what the sign is that's going on here. But uh, Beth Zatha meant house of grace. And here uh, Jesus is during this Jewish festival, uh, spending his time kind of walking the slums. And we see a note in verse four. Some translations actually don't have this verse. It just puts a little footnote uh, because it's really uh, something that was added later to explain what was so significant about Beth Zatha. It says, An angel of the Lord, they believed, would go down and stir the waters at certain times. And whoever was the first to step in after the stirring of the water was healed from whatever disease they suffered. Now, again, this is uh, what was kind of the believed myth at the time, the superstition for that pool. Um, but what we know is that those waters would be stirred uh, from underground springs that caused uh, the surface to stir as the waters moved. And um, people were, again, in the, a place of desperate need. Um, th those sitting around here were desperately sick, uh, waiting for a chance to, to participate in kind of this race to the waters when it stirred to see if maybe it would uh, bring healing to them. Um, th this was a group of people without much hope. It continues in John 5, verse 5, that there was a man who had been disabled for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there, he realized the man had been disabled for a long time already. And he said to him, do you want to become well? Now, I think it's important that when we uh, read Jesus, we make sure that we hear him the way he's meant to be heard. Um, often when I read uh, parts of the Bible, this is ancient literature, I, I'm reading it so I can't hear the tone and inflection of it. I often hear some of the questions that people ask or specifically Jesus asks and the things that he says. Sometimes I hear it in a condescending tone, but Jesus is anything but condescending. He is compassionate. And so here he is uh, interacting with this man who's been, um, uh, been disabled for 38 years. 
it's it's important to know too that uh, the average life expectancy for someone during this time was 20 to 35 years old. And so could you imagine what it was like to feel like your life was already over uh, in your 30s? Maybe you're in your 30s and you <laughs> already feel like your life is over. That's exactly what happens to Joey on Friends. He gets to his 30th birthday and he says, why God, why? It's, we had an agreement. It was supposed to be the others. Let them get older, but not me. And uh, that was very true for someone in the ancient world. Uh, when you were in your 30s, you may be near the end of your life. Um, and here is a hopeless man sitting by this pool waiting for a miracle. And Jesus asks him, do you want to become well? He asks him not in a tone of being condescending, but in a tone of compassion. He's not asking him, why haven't you gotten better yet? Don't you want to? Why haven't you gotten down to the pool? Instead, his tone is more of a, a getting down on uh, kind of his level. Imagine Jesus uh, sitting down next to this man and just gently asking him, you would probably do anything to become better, wouldn't you? You've waited a long time to experience healing and freedom. A tone of Jesus really feeling the, the, the pain of this person. And that's really what we all want from someone when we are experiencing our own pain and our own suffering. Uh, rarely do we ever really want others' uh, well-meaning opinions and advice when we're in a place of hurting, right? Uh, we don't really want people to critique us or tell us how it could have gone differently if we, have, we had only done blank. Um, we often uh, don't want to hear that others have it worse than we do or that we just have to keep going or to be given some kind of platitude. What we really want in moments of frustration and pain and trauma and suffering is to have someone realize um, what we're going through and to empathize with us and care about us and just feel what we feel for a moment. That can be so rare to find a person who's a true friend who will enter into our pain and feel what we feel. But that's exactly what Jesus does. He gets down on this man's level. And the sick man, it says in verse 7, answered him by saying, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. While I'm trying to get into the water, someone else goes down there before me. And Jesus said to him, Stand up, pick up your mat, and walk. And immediately the man was healed, and he picked up his mat and started walking. Now that day was on a Sabbath. So we get our second miracle here. And again, it's more than just a miracle or a healing. It's Jesus' third sign. And some of the, a glimpse into why this is a sign is right there at the end of verse 9 where it says that day was a Sabbath. Um, a Sabbath was really a gift that God had given uh, the Jewish people. Um, even at the first pages of the Bible, we see that God himself in his creative work on the seventh day, he rested and he delighted and enjoyed his creation. And he commanded Israel to take a Sabbath every week, kind of from sundown on Friday night to sundown on Saturday night. This time was a sacred time meant for rest and worship and celebration. And there were other ways that that Sabbath um, was celebrated and, and implemented through Jewish tradition. But here we are, we're in the middle of a, probably a Passover festival on a day of Sabbath where we're supposed to be celebrating who God is enjoying and celebrating the good gifts he's given us and the rest and freedom he brings. And uh, what happens is instead of this man getting to celebrate and experience what God had done in his life, you see the religious leaders begin to interact with him and critique 
what he had just experienced. And so in John uh, 5, verses 10 through 15, we'll read this, and you'll get a little bit of a glimpse uh, into um, the nature of Jesus' sign here. It says that the Jewish leader said to the man who had been healed, it's the Sabbath, and you're not permitted to carry your mat. But he answered them, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. And they asked him, who is the man that said to you, pick up your mat and walk? But the man who had been healed did not know it was Jesus, for Jesus had slipped out since there was a crowd in place. After this, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, Look, you have become well. Don't sin anymore, lest anything worse happen to you. The man went away and informed the Jewish leaders that Jesus was the one who had made him well. So Jesus does this sign for a deeper reason than just healing the man that day. And he says something strange. He says, Look, you have become well. Don't sin anymore, lest anything worse happen to you. And it sounds kind of threatening or just weird to say in general. We know that Jesus in other occasions, when he had healed people, made sure to, to, to let people know that there wasn't a connection between uh, the kind of sin that maybe uh, someone had done in their life and the disability or the ailment that maybe they experienced at birth or later on in life. And he tried to help uh, separate those things out. But here we, hear, we see him pointing to um, something about uh, sin and the brokenness that we all experience in our own life um, about this man. He, he's pointing it out in him for a reason, but it's not to threaten him. It's, it's more to bring to his attention um, his need to be made whole. It, it, you know, he's saying to this man, it's good that you're physically well. Uh, you've waited a long time for that, but make sure you remember to be who God created you to be, to be whole physically, spiritually, and emotionally. Uh, you've waited for a clean bill of health for so long, but don't forget to actually live for God because that's what begins now. Your soul matters here. You were created for eternal purposes, not just temporal ones. So go discover what those are and live with God because he's the one who rescued you for this. That's what he's imploring this lame man who's now been healed to do. It says in verses 16 through 18, because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. And, and um, they, they told him, uh, or Jesus told them this, my father is working until now, and I too am working. And for this reason, the Jewish leaders were trying even harder to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was also calling God his own father, thus making himself equal with God. So Jesus talks differently to the religious leaders because um, this is a sign just as much for them as it was for the lame man. It's a warning about the same thing. Because do you remember what Bethzatha meant, like what it uh, stood for in Aramaic? House of grace. And that's exactly what Jesus is trying to help um, them experience through this sign. I wrote down that the grace of Jesus will radically transform you. That's what this sign means right here, that the, that the grace of Jesus radically transforms us. Apparently, this is what Jesus thought was missing from their lives. Both the religious leaders and this lamb man was the grace of God. They were not being led um, to experience God's grace and its radical transformation in their life. 
What people were experiencing through the religious leaders of the day was deception and oppression and manipulation. They were being sold snake oil. They were being taken advantage of. No one was on their side. No one was working in restorative ways. No one truly believed the power of God made a difference in their life. Life was just pragmatic. People looked out for themselves. It was the exact opposite of being grace-filled and hope-filled and God-filled and gospel-filled. And Jesus is saying, You don't have to go around hunting for mystical solutions for the next 38 years. You don't have to believe in a dead religion. That doesn't actually transform your life. He says, I'm here now. I'm what you've been looking for, and my grace is real. It's not just good thoughts. It's it's practical power and intervention. It will change you. And he's saying, I want you to have faith in me. I want to be yours. I want Uh, you to be mine. I want this to be faith based in a relationship. And that's what's so interesting about what both of these stories have uh, in common, both of these signs. Yes, the first sign shows that our, our desperation is a gift to begin to experience God more deeply. That's what the royal official experiences. And the second sign shows us that God's grace can radically transform our lives. It can it can heal us physically, but it also can make us whole. But what's most important uh, on top of the healing that both of these individuals experienced was the faith that is instilled in them through uh, that healing. Because Jesus is in a way saying that the faith is more important than the healing. It's, it's more important that the, the royal official go home believing that Jesus is the Son of God than only experiencing the healing power for his son. It's more important, Jesus warns, that this man look out for his soul and begin to live for God um, than just experience the physical healing. And that can be incredibly difficult for, for us to hear if we're in those places of seeking God in desperation or experiencing sickness or, or right on, on the cusp of death or someone in our life who's near the end of their life uh, begging God to bring uh, healing and, and and to see his power at work in them. Jesus is showing us that the faith is is actually more important to him than just the healing. It was Tim Keller who said that it's not the quality of our faith that saves us, but the object of our faith. That while at times our faith can be weak or fall short of what it, we think it should be, um, if our faith is in the right thing, that is what actually rescues us. And Jesus is saying, I'm the right thing. Um, Even when it looks like uh, things aren't going the way we expected, there are parts of our lives where our faith is weaker or life doesn't go the way we expect. Jesus is saying, I am still the one who is most trustworthy. I am good. I am salvation. I am healing. Even when you don't get the, the response or healing that you want in the moment. I know that we wrestled through this a lot when we lost Sarah's mom to cancer in uh, 2019. We walked through a journey of praying and asking God to intervene in a way that we just didn't get to see experienced. Um, I'm very aware that um, many of us do not get the miracle we're praying for in the present moment. And I think that's important for us to wrestle through as we look at these two signs. And we should ask ourselves, what do we do with that? Like, what are we supposed to do 
with our own desperation when the physical world around us is breaking down and sickness and death and pain and suffering are real. Here's what I think these two signs have in common, and I think it's something that points to the gospel. I wrote down that the gospel offers a yes and response to our pain and suffering. The gospel offers a yes and response to our pain and suffering. This is going to seem a little cheeky at first, but um, in improv, I don't know if you know anything about um, improv comedy, but there's one rule that you can't break, and it's called the yes and rule, where if you're doing a bit with someone or trying to banter, you aren't allowed to say, oh, no, it didn't happen that way. You have to kind of accept whatever they're coming up with and their own creativity in that moment. And you say, oh, yeah, yeah, that's what happened. And then keep it by going by saying and. So you can be like, oh, my goodness, a bear just broke into the house right now. And you can't say, no, 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 that's not what happened. You have to say, oh, my gosh, yeah, it did. And now I'm running away. You have to continue on with whatever the circumstances are. You have to accept them for what they are, but then you have to continue the story. And so when I say the gospel offers us a yes and response to our pain and suffering, we aren't being asked by God to deny our pain. We're not being asked to hide our doubt or our fear. We're not being asked to diminish the kind of suffering we're experiencing. We're allowed to look our pain and our doubt and our fear straight in the eye while also looking at the grace and hope that Jesus offers. We're allowed to hold both of those things together at the same time, and we can allow the grace of God to transform us in the midst of pain and suffering and doubt and fear. That's actually what the gospel promise is, is that Jesus is who he says he is, that he can heal sickness from far away and up close, that distance and disease and death have no power over him that he is displaying his power in all these miraculous moments while he's pushing back against sin and death and evil in the world. Jesus himself would go to the cross as someone who embraced sin and death and uh, bore that for us, that he walked through these things and got into the mess of our brokenness, into the mess of death himself. And he displayed his power over death by being raised to new life. Um, And he promises one day that one day uh, he will return and make all things new. There'll be a new creation. There'll be a new heavens and new earth. There'll be new bodies for us. And that's exactly what a yes and mentality of the gospel is supposed to give us who walk through pain and suffering. We are meant to, in every physical trial and every sickness and every danger and in every death, we are called to remember that he's not done. We cannot forget to believe in sickness and pain and suffering and death that God has not done. That even sometimes when we don't get the miracle, he's not done. Or in in the midst of uh, coming to him and begging for him to intervene, that he still can. His power is real and his promises are certain uh, no matter what, that he is not finished yet. He is the kind of savior, savior who meets us and rescues us in our greatest desperation. Jesus does have the power to overcome sickness and death. He can still do that. We should still ask him every time. But Jesus healing every disease and preventing every death is not the full extent of his goodness and power. We know Jesus does have the power and authority to work miracles. 
And so we can humbly ask him, not tell him and demand, but we can ask him to work in those ways for us and on behalf of others. But we know that Jesus's work on the cross will be finished when he returns to defeat sin and death and Satan once and for all and make all things new. If you're in a desperate place today, maybe wondering if you're going to get your miracle now or why you didn't get your miracle now, I would encourage you to just as much hold a vision for Jesus not answering these people's prayers, not intervening uh, just as much as he did. What I mean by that is you have to be able to see the power and compassion of Jesus in what actually happened, even when it doesn't work that way. Um, You have to imagine that Jesus interacts with this royal official, and instead of telling him that his son would be well when he got home, that he says um, something along the lines of, right now I'm going to ask you to trust me that your son is safe and cared for and healed, but in none of the ways you would have expected. I'm going to ask you to patiently wait to see your son again, and that in this life um, he wouldn't experience healing, but that one day he could see his son again when he made all things new. Or for him to talk to this lame man who had waited 38 years to be healed and experienced this disability, that uh, Jesus would tell him, your life isn't over because of this disease. Um, even though you will never experience freedom from it in this life, I, you need to know that eternity is in my hands, that you can trust me that there will be joy again. It's going to seem like a lifetime that you have to walk through this, but for Jesus to look at them in the eyes and what they were going through and maybe not for it to change for them in the present, but for him to say, I'm not going anywhere. I'm going to walk with you through this. You will never be alone in this. I will always be here to listen and to cry with you and to remind you how deeply I care about you and to remind them that he alone has the power to make all things new and that that time will come soon. This can be incredibly difficult to hear when you're walking through pain and suffering in desperate moments. But this is exactly what Jesus would offer us in these moments to discover. I would encourage you maybe if you have a few more moments to reflect, to think about these two questions. The first one is, are you willing to become desperate to experience God more deeply? Are you willing to become desperate to experience God more deeply? If you want to follow Jesus, if you want to know God on a personal and deep level, you have to accept that there will be times where you are desperate, where it either feels like God has brought you to this point or life has brought you to this point and you need him in a whole new way. And it's in that time that you can either choose to walk away from him or to draw near to him. Are you willing in those moments of desperation to move closer to God and experience him more deeply? The other question I might ask you, uh, another way of wording it is, what does a yes and faith in Jesus look like for you today? Remember how we talked about the yes and idea of of the gospel or of, of improv, how we accept what is happening in our lives right now, but we also look with great hope to what Jesus promises to do or what the next step of obedience might be with him. I would encourage you to think about what it is that maybe God 
is inviting you into that you can be totally honest with him and honest with what's going on in life or how you're feeling or, or the circumstances you're walking through, but to also invite him into a place of how he wants to bring hope or even action uh, and obedience to him, what that might look like to, uh, to couple um, along with what you're walking through with um, a step toward Jesus. I'd like to just end this message with a short prayer um, for those of you who are walking through a moment of desperation right now. Father, we just come to you and know that you can handle whatever it is that we're feeling, that you meet us in these moments and places of desperation, that you are still good in the midst of them, even when life is not good. And I pray that you would make yourself more real to us through our own circumstances, through the, through the pain and suffering we have to walk through, that we would meet you in those places. We would experience you on an intimate and deep and personal level like we never have, and that we would come to experience your grace um, as powerful and good, that it would change us and it would change our lives. It would change who we are. It would even become real and that people who are listening to this would experience freedom and healing and transformation for themselves or for those who they are are desperately hoping can experience your power. We know that you can do all these things, and so we come to you with open hands and with great hope in who you are, and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Contrast Church Podcast. To learn more about us and how you can be a part of it, visit contrast.church.